chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for and even prevented. I'm John Chidgey and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. This episode, I'd like to talk about a very famous disaster, the Titanic. It was thought to be by the vast, well, general populace, I suppose, that it was a boat that couldn't sink. So when it sank on its maiden voyage, no less, there seemed to be a lot of dark romanticism surrounding it. I suppose the most attractive thing about the Titanic as a disaster is the hubris surrounding our ability to build or think we could build an unsinkable ship, or at least that's the trope. Of course, you can't build an unsinkable ship. You can't build an uncrashable car a train that can't be derailed, a plane that can't crash, or a bicycle that can't crash. All you can do is, well, make it as safe as possible for its occupants in the case that there is an incident, and, well, as unlikely as possible for it to get you into an accident or incident in the first place. There's a long, long laundry list of things that contributed to the sinking of the Titanic, and I'm not going to cover them all. It's been done and done and redone. Rather, I want to focus on two key points, ones that I think are key. But before we do, let's just talk a little bit about the RMS Titanic. RMS, by the way, stands for Royal Mail Ship, which in- indicates that she undertook uh, mail service on behalf of the Royal Mail. It, uh, as a ship, it took three years to construct, used three million steel rivets. It was 269 meters, that's 882 feet long at the time it was the largest man-made moving object on the earth. Now today, in that's December 2015, the largest passenger vessel is now the MS Allure of the Seas, and it is 362 metres long. That's 1,188 feet. In the grand scheme of things, that is bigger, but really not as much bigger as you'd think. The Titanic was a very large ship. It had 29 steam boilers. They used 825 tons of coal every day just to keep them running. The coal was all hand-shoveled into the furnaces by a team of 176 men. Part of the design included 16 watertight compartments. They went as high as F-deck. But importantly, as we'll see later, they were not sealed on top. The Titanic was 92 feet wide and it had nine decks. The maximum capacity was 3,547 people. The lifeboats, there were 20, broken down into 14 regular lifeboats, four Engelhart collapsible canvas boats and two emergency lifeboats. Interestingly, the total lifeboat capacity was only 1,178 people. Breaking that down, regular lifeboat could handle 65 people. Emergency lifeboat was 40, and the collapsible canvas boats were 47 people apiece. So what is the timeline? On April 11, 1912, at 1.30pm, the Titanic left Queenstown 
Island, now called Cobe, and heads across the Atlantic for New York, having picked up passengers both there and from Cherbourg, France, the previous day. On April 12th, 13th, 1912, the Titanic continues on the journey as passengers are enjoying their life on this beautiful, luxurious ship. And it was luxurious. They spared no expense fitting it out. On April the 14th, though, that's when things started to go wrong. At 9.20pm, Captain Smith retired to his room. 20 minutes later, the last of several warnings about icebergs was received in the wireless room. However, that final warning never made it to the bridge. That said, previous warnings had been received. At 11.40pm, lookouts spot an iceberg directly in the path of the Titanic. First Officer Murdoch orders a hard starboard, otherwise known as a left-hand turn, but the Titanic's right side still scrapes the side of the iceberg. Only 37 seconds pass between the sighting of the iceberg and the collision. At 12.05am, Captain Smith orders the crew to prepare the lifeboats and get the passengers and crew up on deck. 40 minutes later, the first lifeboat is lowered into the freezing water. The sinking of the Titanic started at the front. As the front of the ship sank, it caused a large amount of stress along the length of the ship. It was never designed to handle that sort of stress, where the, where the rear end of the boat was literally lifting out of the water. And this caused the Titanic to snap in half at 2.18am. Two minutes after it snapped in half, the Titanic was essentially completely submerged. 4.10am in the morning, the Carpathia picks up the first of the survivors from the lifeboats. And by 8.30 in the morning, they had picked up the final survivors from the final lifeboat. On April 17th, the Mackay Bennett is the first of several ships to travel to the area where the Titanic sank to search for bodies. Finally, October the 18th, the Carpathia finally arrives in New York with 705 survivors. If you look at the history of ships that have sunk due to icebergs, it's key to point out that there have been about five, just five, in the last hundred years. And almost all of those incidents occurred before there were better warning systems. As a direct result of the Titanic, the International Ice Patrol was formed in 1914 to detect, advise and disseminate detailed tracking information about sea ice and ice pack during the year. The night the Titanic was struck, the sea was calm and that made it very difficult to spot icebergs. Ordinarily, wash from the ocean would, uh, well, wash up on the side of them and you'd make them much easier to see. For reasons unexplained, the crow's nest didn't have any binoculars, which was you know, a bit stupid, but it certainly didn't help that the moon also wasn't out that night. It was just starlight. Now, there had been warnings, and several had made it to the bridge, but um, unfortunately, some didn't. Most, the last one didn't either. The route that they were taking at that time of year was bound to have icebergs. So you can reasonably expect that there would have been some, and they should have been, well, perhaps a little bit more concerned than they were. But that's really not that interesting to me. If we accept that being hit by an iceberg is inevitable on a large ocean liner at some point, 
The far better question, more interesting question, is how do we guard against that? How do we prepare ourselves for that outcome? And in the case of the Titanic, why did so many people die? So the two that I want to dive into are lifeboats, or like thereof, claims of it being unsinkable because, quote-unquote, bulkheads. So let's start with the bulkheads. In 1910, the White Star Line published a brochure about their sister ships, the Olympic and the Titanic, in which they stated, As far as it is possible to do so, these two wonderful vessels are designed to be unsinkable. In 1911, an edition of the Shipbuilder magazine stated, The captain can, by simply moving an electric switch, close the watertight doors throughout and make the vessel practically unsinkable. Now, it's interesting because it wasn't just some of the publicity materials, although actually the origin of that quote from the brochure was was debated. The truth is that the Shipbuilder magazine did say practically unsinkable, and that has definitely been traced back to that original magazine. But it wasn't just those statements. You have to understand that there were also similarly designed ships around that time that had the bulkheads, that had the watertight compartments. And there was a belief that this method of separating out the hull was going to be a significant advantage in reducing the rate, if not eliminating, the fact that the ship could sink. And an example of this that fed this myth that it would be unsinkable because of its design was something that happened on the RMS Republic. as one example, but perhaps the most pertinent. That happened on the 23rd of January in 1909. Now, the RMS Republic collided with the SS Florida in dense fog, and whilst it did begin to sink initially, the bulkhead design stopped the ship from sinking any further uh, immediately prior to the incident. But seven boats responded to the incident, and while six people were killed at the moment of impact, no one actually drowned because the ship didn't sink while there were still people on it. And all 1,500 or so remaining passengers were transferred off the stricken vessel in time. The following day, though, while it was being towed back to port, eventually it did sink as the bulkheads gave way. But that incident fed the perception, and there were a few other similar ones, that these designs, the bulkhead designs, made ships of this sort unsinkable. From the point of view that everyone could be evacuated well in time before it sank. That's if it sank at all. So, there were several other similar incidents, as I said, with not so many people involved, you know, smaller ships and boats. The design of the Olympic and the Titanic were just like the Republic, just larger, and it incorporated those bulkheads as an integral part of the hull. Now, there were 15 bulkhead doors, and that made a total of 16 compartments. There were three mechanisms that you could use to lower the bulkheads. There was a remote switch from the bridge that they talked about in the Shipbuilder magazine. Very proud of that switch. There were float switches in each compartment, and there was a manual lever mechanism on the door as a mechanical override. So the design meant that the ship could stay afloat even if two of the compartments were completely flooded. But because equipment and storage rooms and second-class cabins uh, and above were getting in the way, the bulkheads extended to about five metres above the waterline when the boat was fully laden. That works out to about F deck. Essentially, that meant the G-deck, the all-up deck, and obviously all the boilers, coal storage, and everything, they were all below the waterline. So when the iceberg gouged 
a 300 feet section of the Titanic's hull. That's 92 meter section. It pierced a total of this of six compartments. Large amounts of water were flowing into three of them. And the thing to remember is it wasn't a single gouge. It was actually six separate gouges. Three of them were only about five or ten meters long. The largest was nearly 40 meters long. But it wasn't just one gouge. There's been a theory kicked around by some scientists who have been studying the disaster. And their conclusion was rather interesting. They suggested that the bulkheads may have, in fact, made this worse. And the reason they say this is because if there had been no bulkheads, if there were no compartments at all, and the same gouges had occurred, the incoming water into the hull would have spread out far more evenly between the front and the back of the hull. What that would have meant is that the boat would not have, in fact, sunk more in the front at such a fast rate. Hence, the back of the boat would also be dragged down as it's slowly filled with water. What I would mean is that uh, the boat wouldn't do a nosedive down into the ocean because as it dived down, the water was able to actually, um, well, essentially get uh, pull the hull out of the water and caused it to snap. And as soon as that happened, it was a free, the water just flooded in and it was down within minutes. So one of the theories that, that goes around is the compartments actually did make them worse. It, it would have sunk a lot slower, perhaps, without them. And in some more recent simulations, they suggested it could have remained afloat for as much as another six hours. Now, we know what time the Carpathia arrived. We could probably reasonably assume that those people would have been saved had it been afloat for six hours because the Carpathia responded within that time. Since the Titanic, designs for double hulls have been the preference where compartments are employed. They extend much higher than in the hull than the original design of the Titanic. Ultimately, though, the design of the compartments, perhaps it wasn't really necessarily a bad idea. You could argue perhaps it was poorly executed. One of the other parts of it that was poorly executed was the fact that these sections, these bulkheads, they only covered the... Uh, the X and Y axis. They, there was no seal over the top of them. They they were not um, watertight insofar as they were an, a, a box of air, like a pontoon. They weren't like that at all. They were simply doors in the hull, and they were completely open on top. So water could simply go over the top, and that's exactly what it did as it sank. So ultimately, no, it wasn't a bad idea, no. But perhaps it was poorly executed, and design experience since then has told us that double hulls are a better option. Oh, yeah, and uh, if you're going to have bulkheads, they should probably go up higher too. Let's talk about the lifeboats now. I always thought it was so odd, as did a lot of people, that there were only 16 lifeboats and four small collapsible boats for some 2,228 passengers and crew. 16 of the 20 lifeboats were used in the emergency, loading between about 20 to 1 and 10 past 2 in the morning. Two of the collapsible boats floated away in the final minutes before the ship sank. Many of the lifeboats were filled to significantly less than their maximum capacity, and in some cases at only half capacity. Had every lifeboat been filled, they could only have evacuated 53% of the people on that ship. But the shortage of lifeboats wasn't actually due to a lack of space. During the design stages 
of the Titanic, Alexander Carlyle, Harland and Wolfe's chief draftsman and general manager, submitted a plan to the White Star Line to provide 64 lifeboats in the Titanic's original design. The reasons aren't exactly clear, but the, the figure was actually later reduced by half to 32. Once again, in March 2010, it was reduced again by another half to only 16. The cost of an extra 32 lifeboats, let's say, would have only been $16,000 at the time, which represents overall 0.2% of the overall cost of the Titanic, which was about $7.5 million. So if it was a cost saving, it really wasn't a very good cost saving. The British Board of Trade devised a bunch of safety regulations for merchant vessels of the time, and uh, they were updated several times, but most significantly with the passage of the Merchant Shipping Act in 1894. The act and regulations at the time of Titanic's construction required a vessel of 10,000 tonnes or more to carry 16 lifeboats with a total capacity of 9,625 cubic feet, which is 272.5 cubic metres. That would be sufficient for 960 people. However, the original tonnage limitations, they were for a ship that's less than a quarter of the mass of the Titanic, and that would kind of make them, well, woefully inadequate. It would be an understatement. Anyway, the inquiry also revealed the White Star Line wanted fewer boats on the decks to provide unobstructed views for the passengers, and that would give the ship more aesthetics, I suppose, um, for from the exterior view uh, and the enjoyment of their passengers. It'd be a lot less cluttered. I mean, he's going to need lifeboats, right? The area that was free of lifeboats, and uh, no surprises, it was the first-class promenade. As a result of what happened on the Titanic, on March the 4th, 1915, United States President Woodrow Wilson signed the Lafayette's Seamen's Act of 1915, in which it provided that all ocean-going ships be equipped with lifeboats for 75% of passengers, the remainder to be provided collapsible rafts. In other words, everyone on board got a boat of some kind. The wreck of the Titanic. It was discovered on the 1st of September 1985 by a Franco-American expedition led by Robert Ballard. Its final resting place is 370 miles, that's 600 kilometers, off the coast of Newfoundland at a depth of 12,500 feet. That's 3.8 kilometers down. It's a very sorry story. And as I said at the beginning, it's been very romanticized. There have been lots of movies made about it. But for me, the key learning with the Titanic is that risk perception can be driven by emotion and a misinterpretation of the facts. Every ship that's built has to be designed to handle a complete evacuation. And not just ship to lifeboat, but ship to ship as well. The assumptions that they made during the design, let's just go through them. First assumption is a large number of ships in a well-trafficked, busy shipping lane meant rescue times would be short. Now, actually, the funny thing is that turned out to be relatively true. Four hours and 30 minutes before 
the first ship arrived to help. So short, yes, but not short enough. The bulkhead design potentially made the sinking rate worse. A double hull design would have been better, but higher bulkheads would have been better. Fully sealable compartments, better again. The reduction in the number of lifeboats was based on flawed assumptions surrounding the sinking rate and the rescue times. Regulations also didn't keep up with the technology. They were building enormous ships. It was more than four times the size of the one that they had in mind when they wrote the legislation. And I mean, that's sadly common. It's a common problem. And sometimes it takes incidents like this to push legislation forward. It shouldn't, but it does. The saddest part about it is that the original design had, legally speaking, the right quantity of lifeboats. It had been legislated that way, and White Star Line had it had it, had it been legislated to have a full 64, or even if it met uh, the updated act in 1915, then the White Star Line would have had no option but to add them. But because the regulations didn't, they chose not to. And that's why we legislate these things. Because if we didn't, well... So whenever we build any vessel, any building, any room, anything that contains people at one point or another, we have to understand evacuations and we have to push our assumptions. We can't rely on the idea that incidents are unlikely. We have to approach it from the perspective that incidents will happen and we need to be prepared for them when they do. Keeping rescue equipment in good working order, training people how to use them properly Practicing evacuation drills, these are all critical components that need to be done regularly, thoroughly, because if they're not, someday, maybe not today, maybe not even tomorrow or even the next month, but someday, when it does all go wrong, people can die. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can, like one of our backers, Chris Stone. He and many others are patrons of the show via Patreon, and you can find it at patreon.com slash johnchidgey, all one word. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, it's very much appreciated. This was Causality. I'm John Chidgey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.